The first votes of the presidential campaign now cast, but what about us? We track when Kansas and Missouri voters get to weigh in, and will anyone care? It's going to be Kansas City's biggest event ever, but did hosting the World Cup just got a whole lot more difficult this week? We talk trash and pick apart the rest of the week's big local news stories straight ahead. Week in Review is made possible through the generous support of AARP Kansas City, RSM, Dave and Jamie Cummings, Bob and Marlise Gorley, the Courtney S. Turner Charitable Trust, John H. Mize and Bank of America N.A., co-trustees, the restaurant at 1900, and by viewers like you. Thank you. Welcome, I'm Nick Haynes, and thank you for joining us on our weekly journey through the most impactful and important news stories of our week, tracking Kansas City's confusing and befuddling local news stories of Brian Ellison, who tracks the top regional political stories for KCUR News. From 95.7 FM KCMO Talk Radio, Pete Mundo is with us, former star reporter and opinion writer Dave Helling, and from our own newsroom, Flatland KC, Mary Sanchez. Now, the first votes of the 2024 presidential campaign campaign were cast this week and on Tuesday New Hampshire weighs in. So when do we get a chance to make our views known and will anybody care what we have to say here? One thing you need to know is that there won't be a primary in Missouri this year. On March 2nd Republicans will hold a caucus and Democrats won't vote until three weeks later on March 23rd. Brian first of all why no primary in Missouri and why different dates for Democrats and Republicans? They can't get along? Well, uh, <laughs> I think that's fairly obvious, but I don't think that's the reason. I, the, the reality is that the parties run presidential primary processes. They choose what order the states get to go in. They choose how they do them. Uh, and in this case, uh, Missouri's Republicans and Democrats have been on different pages, and the national parties have. Uh, I, I do think that uh, the, the, the caucuses happening in Missouri are are unlikely to get the kind of attention they would get if it were simply a, a presidential primary vote. But I, I did see, looking at the calendar, Pete, Missouri is actually going to be the sixth state to vote alongside uh, Idaho on uh, March 2nd. That puts the show me state as one of the earliest places. So does that give Missouri some extra political clout? Well, in a normal year it might, but I mean, we just saw what happened on Monday night in Iowa with uh, Donald Trump winning by 30. New Hampshire expected to take it there. South Carolina, I think this will be over, uh, not not in terms of pure numbers, but it'll effectively be over by the time we get to Missouri. So we're totally irrelevant, Mary. Please tell us. <laughs> please tell us that's not so. I say no, and that I mean I completely understand the strategy and why it may be over. You know, someone could say that very accurately, but I think there's a lot to learn, frankly, for reporters, for everyone, for, about rural voters. Um, you know, which a lot will drive some of those caucuses. If, there, if there's more nuance and more depth there, uh, Dave, could we expect some of these candidates to show up in Missouri? Yeah, I think Pete is right. By the time of the Missouri primary, Ron DeSantis may be out of the race or close mm -hmm. to it. Maybe Nikki Haley as well. That doesn't leave much for the Republican side. And of course, Joe Biden is the presumptive nominee for the Democrats. Let me tell you this, though, Nick, I can 100% guarantee that when the conventions are held, and I've attended 14 of them, no matter who wins in Missouri, the delegates will cast their ballots for whoever the winner is. They, they, we always think of Iowa as being sort of, oh, we're going to pick delegates for the... No, they'll always vote. In 2020, it was for Trump. In 2016, it was for Trump. Even though Ted Cruz won the Iowa caucuses, 
Every vote from Iowa was cast for Donald Trump at the convention. So they're much less important in terms of delegate selection and the process of nomination than they are about media and exposure and headlines. Will we see any of the candidates? I, I very much doubt it, and a part of the reason for that is not only everything that has been said about the potential irrelevance by the 2nd of March, but also the fact that Super Tuesday is March 5th. It's just three days later, so there's 20 other high-value states happening three days after Missouri's event. Seems very unlikely that we'll see it, but but I think the whole question, the whole line of questions, raises the, the issue of whether we are choosing our presidential candidates in the right way. Should Missouri and Kansas have so little influence when Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina have that. I'm not ignoring you, Kansas, by the way. You won't get to vote until March 19th. And unlike Missouri, Democrats and Republicans are hosting an actual presidential primary. That means you can also advance vote. In the past, Pete, Kansas has decided it doesn't make sense to spend all that money on a primary when the outcome doesn't matter much. So what changed? Are party leaders expecting Kansas to reshuffle the presidential race? No, it's about money, as I understand it. Uh, they can save millions of dollars uh, by doing it this way. And it seems like that's the play. But once again, I mean, we're talking about Mark. I think Brian makes a great point on Super Tuesday. Uh, if we even have a race by then, all the focus, all the money is going to be in those states. And, you know, we sit here and uh, we hope it's more competitive next time around. But there's not much to talk about on this front. And so you're not, not, not going to see states. Donald Trump at your local barbecue joint or Ron DeSantis in the cereal aisle at Costco in Overland Park ahead of that Kansas primary? And Joe Biden won't be at the local ice cream shop. So, no, I don't think any of those things are going to be happening. We are in a new year, but the headlines feel old around here. Last year, one of the big headlines was a spate of shootings at shopping centers from the Country Club Plaza to Oak Park Mall. Now Crown Center in the spotlight as Mayor Quinton Lucas was preparing to leave for Washington to host a conversation about gun violence with the vice president. Crown Center is shut down after a mass shooting that sees six people injured in what police say was a dispute between two groups of young people. It happened just after 5 o'clock on a weekday. Is this just another crime story, Mary, that makes headlines now, gets a few news conferences expressing outrage, and then disappears when something new comes along a week from now? I hope not, and I hope not for the right reasons. I mean, there are shootings all the time on the east side that could possibly even be considered a mass shooting by three, four, you know, some people hurt. This, it, it drives fear. I mean, I hope that people can understand what this type of thing does is now anyone who goes in and around Crown Center might think in their heads, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I don't feel safe. Do I need to go buy a gun? That is why people, that drives more gun ownership. Some will be reasonable, responsible gun owners, others won't. It, it, that, that phenomenon of gun violence in public places drives fear, which tends to drive bad public policy and oftentimes not but, but the most responsible at all. You know, when there was shootings at Independence Center last year, shootings at the Country Club Plaza, shootings at Oak Park Mall, did it change well, any behavior? Did it change any policies? You might have a bit of, you know, police presence for a week or two and then it just goes back to normal? Well, to me, the, the, the Crown Center story is similar to... Uh, a lot of the other stories we've talked about in the region as a whole, but in particular, you know, this is not just about fear. There's also an economic element to this. You have retailers, restaurants, business owners who are now being impacted by this. Um, you have a chamber of commerce that has been very silent on this crime issue in the Kansas City area for the better part of a year. So it's a story that, yes, is about six people getting shot. But the ramifications, because it's in a high retail place, and this could be 18th and Vine, this could be the plaza issues, this could be downtown. That's why this is a story, and it's worth talking about with six people ultimately getting shot. But, but will we just forget about it in a week, Dave? 
Well, no, I, I think Pete may be right that if there's a major uh, economic implication for this shopping center, something will be done. My guess is the most likely thing are metal detectors, and I think you're going well, to see those. But it didn't happen at Oak Park Mall. It didn't right. happen at Independence Center. So it didn't happen at Kind of, kind of right. But I mean, at some point, people are going to say, look, the economics are such that we need to reassure people that they don't need to carry weaponry into my uh, facility, and usually the next step is metal detectors or some sort of screening at the door. Now, Mayor Lucas, by the way, has often argued that his hands are tied. The city doesn't control the police department. The city can't control guns. Those laws are set by the states. Has anything changed, though, in Jefferson City to give any indication lawmakers are ready to give cities the opportunities to make their own gun rules, Brian? I don't think there's any indication of that, Nick. And in fact, this very same week when the shooting occurred, the legislature held a hearing in a committee about a proposal to allow guns uh, on public transportation, to to ease Missouri's already basically completely unrestrictive gun laws even further. Uh, the, the Representative Emily Weber, a Democrat from Kansas City, when I spoke with her about that, she called that the ev guns everywhere bill. Um, she thinks that, again, there will be enough opposition in some fronts to hold it off one more session, but, but it will keep coming back. Uh, I think there's real question about whether legislators are on the same page as city officials when it comes to issues like this. And this is uh, a big election year in Missouri. Could, do you see any change happening on that front? Uh, no, I, I don't. Uh, you got obviously three people right now running for governor. Um, one our secretary of state, one the lieutenant governor. One, of course, is in the state Senate. So nothing big is going to happen on that front. But there's something unique to Kansas City. When St. Louis is driving down its homicide numbers, as it did 30 40 percent the last couple of years, why are our numbers going up? We can't look at just the state. We can disagree on gun laws in the state, but there's something unique happening here that um, no one's obviously been able to solve because if they could, we wouldn't be sitting here with 182 homicides last year. And in 20 seconds or less, what is that unique thing that is happening uh, here that is not happening elsewhere in Missouri then, Mary? I think some of the collaboration. I mean, just has not occurred to figure it out. The things that drive crime and that drive people to use guns indiscriminately tend to be very human nature. I'll tell you what the unique thing is. It's state control of the police department. Why, why, Louis, that, why would you think that would make St. a big Louis. difference? Because St. Louis just went back to local control, and as Pete points out, the murder rate has dropped. In a That's city, what, yes it is, Mary, what, what, when you have a, a police department in which no one is responsible for actual oversight, no one takes responsibility. Every time you blame Mayor Quentin Lucas, he can say, hey, I don't control the police department. Control of the police department is not just about maintaining oversight of the board. It's accountability and responsibility. No one has that in Kansas City. No one. Well, rather than giving more freedom to Kansas City, lawmakers in Jefferson City this week were working to wipe out one of Kansas City's biggest pots of money, which yeah. actually helps, ironically, to fund the police department and other things like roads. It's the 1% earnings tax that everyone who works in Kansas City, even if you don't live here, are forced to pay. Legislators proposing cutting the tax by 10% each year until it is totally eliminated. We've heard this so many times before, Brian. It's never happened. How sh uh, seriously should we take this effort? Uh, I don't know that it's going to happen this session, Nick. It's an election year. There's a lot of crazy things going on. But at the same time, I think Kansas City will want to keep an eye on this because it does keep coming back. Now, in this case, most of the energy for the effort is actually on the St. Louis side of the state. It's the yes. St. Louis earnings tax that is really the target of the legislators who are proposing this. But it could have collateral damage for Kansas City. And, and the reality is it would be catastrophic for Kansas City, at least as the budget is currently constructed. Because they'd have to find about half of their general fund 
budget to exactly. do things like roads, fire response, uh, paramedics and, uh, and police. Absolutely. And at the same time, another big issue that's coming up for all cities is that the COVID money is running out. I mean, you see that with the bus issue here. There's a lot of little stop gaps that have been that were helped by COVID money and that money, those funds are no longer going to be around. So the tightening of budgets and what they depend on to fund city services, big conversation. Missouri lawmakers, by the way, were talking trash this week. Back on the agenda is another effort to make it harder for Kansas City to build a landfill in the south part of the city. That has enraged pretty much everyone in the vicinity from Raymore to Lee Summit. We've been told that 2037 is when Kansas City will run out of space for all its trash. Pete, we're used to legislators talking about big issues like abortion and the death penalty. How much of an issue and why is this such a, a big priority for lawmakers? Well, there's a lot of... Um money and, and, and grassroots effort behind this uh, right in our backyard. So there's a lot of people, uh, I've talked to them, they've called into my show that are going down there, they're, they're making noise about it at the state capitol. So it's become this pretty big issue. Um, and you've got the local state centers and state reps who have also gotten heavily involved. These organizations, these individuals are donating uh, to some of these candidates who are seeking higher office as well. So there's a lot of strings attached. And, uh, you know, because of some of the, the nicer developments down there, there's, there's, there's money behind it. And the p purpose of this is to say that uh, Kansas City can't build this landfill there unless there would be uh, support from Lee Summit and Rainbow and those other neighboring cities. Right, which, which if we look at the Missouri political implications of that, those tend to be more Republican-leaning cities. Republicans are in control of the state legislature. Uh, I think you're, there's, there is some real possibility that that will be the victorious side as it was, uh, as it has been in the past. You know, uh, again, I don't want to forget about you if you live in Kansas. It's been a busy week in Topeka, <laughs> too. Here's actually three quick headlines out of Topeka, if you missed them. The Republican-controlled legislature trying to squeeze the governor again, this time by stripping her of her ability to fill vacancies, such as when a U.S. senator were to resign before their term is up. The GOP majority also thumbing their nose this week at Kelly's new tax cut plan by voting instead to abolish all income tax brackets in the state and replacing them with a simple flat tax of 5.25% for everyone. And even though Kansas voters rejected changes to abortion law at the ballot box last year, a new bill has been filed this week that would impose a near total ban on abortion, except in emergency cases to save the life of the mother. The highest court in Kansas, Dave, has already declared that women have a constitutional right to the procedure. So why introduce a bill at all? What's the motivation if they think it can't go anywhere? Well, uh, they're Let's give them credit for uh, their motives. They want to uh, uh, restrict abortion in the state. The, the bill, however, if you read it, which I have, is extraordinarily unconstitutional. The, the justices of the Kansas Supreme Court said that uh, you can only restrict uh, abortions in the state if they meet what they call a strict scrutiny scan a standard, which I won't go into here, but this one clearly doesn't qualify. So it may be more about show than anything else. Um, and the tax vote is also interesting. We can talk about that a little bit a a as well going forward. But I'm just, you know, even Kansans for Life, Pete, has said that this has no chance of passing the legislature. I'm, I'm really trying to understand why then the motivation for doing it. Well, anyone can introduce a bill, right? I mean, it's eight Republicans in a 140-person house that probably none of us can name or pick out of a lineup. So um, there's probably political reasons for them. They see this as a fit, but you're right. Kansans for Life is not backing this. No one in leadership wants to be behind this. So it, it's a political play for them, and then it's a political play for those who want to bring it up and make it a big issue when it's got no chance of going anywhere. Mary. It is a political play, and it also does answer something that is occurring for people who are anti-abortion. 
Um, you know, Kansas is a destination now as other states have shut down. So you have people coming from other states to Kansas to get an abortion, which some people find very offensive, and they're going to fight that any way they can. And that actually makes me think that in some ways, Nick, it isn't a political play. Some of the people who are supporting this are doing it because sure. they are true believers. There sure. was a story this week that the, the platform under consideration at the next uh, state Republican convention is going to be pro-life, anti-gay marriage, and it even quotes God's guidance as the source for those positions. I think a lot of the energy for this kind of legislation and in the Kansas Republican Party isn't politically motivated in the sense that they believe it's going to pass. They just think it's the right thing to do. Okay, you said, Dave, you wanted to talk about taxes, but a lot of people's eyes glaze over when they hear words like income tax brackets, uh, flat tax. What is so relevant to the public to know about well, this I particular that, debate this week? Yeah, the idea that someone making 60000 a year would get 75 cents back uh, in tax cuts, why someone making $6 million a year would get $25,000 back is just not going to pass among the Democrats and Republicans, some Republicans in Topeka. And, and um, yeah, Laura Kelly did say on, on my show on Thursday that she's going to veto this thing once it gets to her desk. She doesn't want to do it, and she won't do it. Last week, it was Kansas Governor Laura Kelly who was in the news. Uh, as she delivered her State of the State address. Now, Mike Parson is preparing for his big moment in front of the cameras. He delivers what will be his last State of the State message before lawmakers. On Wednesday, he leaves office at the end of the year, and he's ready to reveal all in a new book about a drop, about to drop called No Turning Back. Some of us are already struggling to sleep in anticipation of what Parson <laughs> will reveal in his tell-all. But in the meantime, as he starts his victory lap, what will historians look back on as Parson's greatest accomplishment, Brian? Well, first, a minor correction, Nick. The title is No Turn In Back. Ooh, uh, so, you know, sorry. I was being too uh, <laughs> grammatical. <laughs> exactly, which is uh, perhaps uh, part of the story. Uh, the, he, here's the thing, Nick. Uh, Mike Parson started his term succeeding uh, the disgraced Eric Greitens. Uh, he never got the chance to run for governor on his own in the first place. He, he, he ran for re-election. He has said, in fact, he says in this new book that he never wanted to be governor. His intention was to serve eight years as lieutenant governor and go home uh, and, and retire. Um, I think he will be remembered as someone who did uh, accomplish uh, a few things. Uh, Democrats will say that he, he did not uh, hold an entirely ideological uh, perspective. He proposed budgets that the Democrats often supported. Um, he, on the other hand, he, he, conservatives will remember him for his unflinching commitment to law enforcement, uh, for conservative social issue positions. As he was a former sheriff in Polk County. Exactly. What, what do you think is his biggest accomplishment, Pete? Well, um, I think a lot of people would say, first off, his legacy is certainly tied to Greitens. Um, his biggest accomplishment, I... <laughs> I don't know. I really. I mean, I think a lot of Republicans would say it's he left a lot on the table for a state that has super majorities and a Republican governor. It's really the story is about what has not gotten done despite the redness of the state, and that's uh, a lot of Republicans running for governor are running against Mike Parson's six years in office. Yeah, Mary. It is still up in the air. I think the main thing that people, a lot of audiences, are looking for is what is he going to do about Devalconeer. Is he going to, in those That's last the moments... the police officer who was convicted in Kansas City for shooting uh, an African-American, yes. Yes, and it is the appeals are still going through the courts, and the governor has said that he's going to wait until that plays out. If he tries to moderate that sentence at all, he was sentenced to six years, if he tries to cut it a little bit short, if he tries to give some sort of pardon, that is really going to seal his image 
for many people in the community. But others may applaud him for that because he would Absolutely. be, again, back to Brian's point, as being He's one of the sheriff. most supportive, uh, supportive governors law for law enforcement. Dave? A couple yeah. of things. I, I think that he'll be, be best remembered by riding the ship after Eric Greitens. I mean, people go back and look about where, where the state of Missouri was at that point, and I think for better or for worse, uh, Mike Parson at least steadied the ship uh, to a more normal politics after the Greitens affair. Uh, he got a bad hand of cards, uh, Nick, because the Republican Party in Missouri is really two parties. And one of the reasons that he hasn't accomplished much is he was never able to unite the sort of more conservative wing with the moderate wing. He did get a good uh, deal of the cards with COVID money pouring in from Washington, which, as is the case in most states, enabled him to build up a real surplus from which he could do something. Now, with so much news attention on the never-ending debate over the sports stadiums, there's been barely any coverage of the growing number of unanswered questions about what could be Kansas City's biggest ever event, the World Cup. With the clock ticking, soccer's governing body FIFA has still yet to announce when the tournament will actually begin. And host cities like Kansas City still don't know how many games the global tournament gets. Uh, and it's going to be starting in about 870 days from now. All of these questions, we are told, would be answered in September, then by early December, then by the end of the year. And every one of those self-imposed deadlines has been walked back. Now, to add to the uncertainty, Kansas lawmakers bulking at a commitment from Kansas Governor Laura Kelly to contribute $20 million to the games. Republican leaders say they oppose spending Kansas tax dollars on an event taking place in Missouri. So bi-state cooperation has its limits, Pete? Uh, yeah, it's, it seems to be that way. And, you know, a lot of the action is going to be on the Missouri side. I know Quint Lucas can say it benefits the regional economy with hotels and restaurants in May. But really, the only thing on the Kansas side are things on the Kansas side that will be used are facilities for practicing, as I understand it. So, I, you know, Kansas, Kansans are going to say, well, why is my tax money going to something that will mostly benefit Missouri? But World Cup is, the World Cup Committee in Kansas City is relying on Kansas to give a lot of this money. Does this jeopardize our hosting of no, these games? No, no, no. They'll figure it out one way or the other. And I think Kansas may come up with some money, $20 million may be too much. We need to pay extraordinarily close attention next Wednesday, Nick, when the governor gives, of Missouri gives his state of the state address because the budget is released the same day. And at that point, we'll know how much Missouri is going to commit to the World Cup, A, and B, how much money the state may be on the hook for for the stadiums in Kansas City. Uh, so Wednesday is a, is a really a, a interesting, important day for us to pay attention uh, to. And by the way, of course, the World Cup will be played at Arrowhead Stadium. Again, all the uncertainty over a tax election, does that play into that tax vote at all, the World Cup? And they need to make already a lot of renovations to make that happen as it is, Mary. It might. I mean, just it needs to be part of the conversation because there do need to be changes to the field to accommodate. Um, but that, all these unanswered questions, it's at the point where it's not anticipation. There, you know, when you're in that void of we don't know, where are we going to get the World Cup here? That was a good anticipation of unknowing. Now we need to know more. Alrighty, when you put a program like this together every week, you can't get to every story grabbing the headlines. What was the big local story we missed? It was the week of the shattered helmet, the frozen mustache, and more than a few shirtless fans in the coldest Chiefs game on record. The frigid temps reignite concerns for local homeless. Oh, it's terrible. It hurts. I mean, you gotta go to sleep, and then you wake up with your feet are hurting, and your hands hurting, and uh, nobody cares. And school cancellations cause big headaches for parents. 
the son of slain civil rights leader Martin Luther King in Kansas City. The Help Wanted sign now out for a new school superintendent in Shawnee Mission, Dr. Michelle Hubbard retiring. She's been on the job for just two and a half years. A Help Wanted sign is also out for a new Kansas City Library director. John Heron resigns to spend more time with his family. He replaced longtime library leader Crosby Kemper three years ago. Hope you didn't get soggy luggage this week as record cold bursts pipes and floods the baggage claim at KCI. And the cold temps also freezing restaurant week sales. With the temperatures being so low, I think that's kind of deterred people from coming out. All righty, Brian, did you pick one of those stories or something completely different? Well, I picked several of them, which is the cold. I think the cold, uh, we, you know, we on, the, on shows like this, Nick, we talk a lot about politics, we talk about policy, but this is the kind of thing that, that real people, if you will, are talking about. It's, it's how devastating and overwhelming uh, the weather was over the past week, and of course we're getting another dose of it this weekend. My neighbor, uh, who is a, a stay-at-home dad, he works from home, he's told me that there was a 32-day stretch where his children were in school for four days uh, over the past month. And uh, I just think, as a, as a community, there's, there uh, there's may not be anything we can do about it, but it is the news. Mary. I would actually agree as well, because it just affected so many things. It, it kind of makes you realize, I mean, we're human beings. We cannot control the weather. I mean, have the climate change conversation. But we're, we are interdependent. You know, I was checking on neighbors. You know, people worry about pets. They worry about houseless people, as they should. Who can get around, who can't? It, it's kind of a humbling moment to have that type of a weather siege. Dave. Coalition of uh, Groups in Missouri has agreed on language for a petition to put abortion on the ballot in the state in 2024. They announced that uh, as we tape this show. Um, they need to get about 170, 180,000 valid signatures in the next 100 days. That's a very, very tight timeline. You can bet that there will be petition gatherers at the polls in April uh, when the Kansas Cityans potentially go to vote on new stadiums. And Pete. Well, uh, I'll stay with the theme, and as someone who was out there uh, just recently thawed out from being at the Chiefs-Dolphins game, it's it's been cold, I can attest to that, after four hours of being yes. out there. So uh, uh, go Chiefs this weekend, and, and last thing too, Mary Sanchez making me a, a friendship bracelet should not be overlooked in the wake of our fandom for Taylor Swift. It even says... <laughs> Radio on it. See, so you get go. gifts. Oh, yeah. this is amazing. I this, show up and we I pay get nothing gifts. for you to come on yeah. the show, but at least you're getting a uh, gift. That is, that is incredible. I didn't get a gift. All right. On that, we will say our week has been reviewed thanks to Mary Sanchez from the Kansas City PBS newsroom Flatland and 6 to 10 weekday mornings on 95.7 FM KCMO Talk Radio Pete Mundo. From KC1 News, Brian Ellison and former star newsman Dave Helling. And I'm Nick Haynes from all of us here at Kansas City PBS. Be well, keep calm, and carry on.